Hey everybody, this is Scott Leckie from Jointly Venturing, um, and I'm here today with Jordan Backer, the Director of Education at Oneness World. And today's episode, which is episode four, we're going to talk about human rights, their role in the world, and how did we actually get there. Um, as you may know, the 10th of December is International Human Rights Day, and this year is particularly important because it is the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights from 10th of December 1948, which is one of the cornerstone documents that was adopted following the Second World War, which has had such a huge impact on, uh, well, the entire field of human rights, of course, but also in terms of how we've decided to organize ourselves politically since 1945 and then 48, and is really the foundation for the entire body of human rights law and practice, which has emerged over the past uh, seven decades. And we're living through a time, of course, where human rights, far from being the priority issue of foreign policy and national policy of many governments, has instead become second or third or fourth <laughs> priority policy, as governments in many corners of the world are shifting from democratic structures to increasingly authoritarian and uh, autocratic ones. Human rights, of course, when protected in full across all lines in society, are really meant to protect people against such developments. So it, of course, raises the question of where, we are, where are we today when it comes to human rights and human rights law? Are we still evolving? Is the system as dynamic as it was originally intended to be? Is it strong enough? And are we in a position to be able to predict that human rights laws are going to continue to expand the protections they are meant to give all people in all societies? Or are there so many forces at play that are essentially contrary or anti-human rights that we really have a problem on our hands? So that's what we'd like to speak about today. Um, where are we in terms of human rights? And how do human rights eventually fit into the whole question of what oneness world and jointly venturing are after, which is to start a global discussion and a global debate about our very political structures that we have designed to guide us and organize ourselves in political terms. Our view, of course, is that we need to start discussing ways by which planet Earth and all of the humans that rely on it decide to organize themselves politically. We've had nation states for a very long time, three, four hundred years. There is a trend now in some countries, which is the inverse of multilateralism and internationalism, whereby rising nationalism and rising xenophobia, rising white supremacy, etc., are beginning to take hold in countries which have traditionally pursued very internationalist lines, at least since the end of the Second World War. And that is something that has clear and pressing ramifications for the protection of human rights in those countries and beyond. And that's just one of, of very many developments in the world which are not necessarily uh, playing in the direction of strengthening human rights and rather attempting to um, undermine them. So I think we'll start the, the conversation today by asking Jordan, who's 28 years old, um, what does human rights mean to you as a, as a young Australian man? Um, how have you noticed human rights throughout your life? Do you think improvements need to be made both in Australia and beyond? And, and what do you say is the future of human rights? Jordan? Thanks, Scott. Well, quite a few questions there. I think that I think that I first became conscious of human rights 
after I finished high school. So my education um, didn't really involve much um, content on human rights. And so it was only really after I left that I began to uh, explore what human rights even meant. And it took me quite a while to kind of get my head around it and around the kind of international system that protects them. I think that's an interesting point. Um, and now as a high school teacher, I'm very conscious we do, at, at the school that I've been working at, we do actually cover human rights in quite some detail. And I'm really conscious of trying to communicate their importance because I, I do believe they're crucially important. Um, and I think that our education system has quite a role to play in really helping everyday citizens really understand how fundamental human rights are to the structure of society and to ensuring equality and um, equal opportunities and, and fairness. So how do they influence my life? Well, I feel very fortunate to live in Australia in many ways um, because a lot of our basic human rights are pretty much guaranteed. Um, I think that I see among my peers probably a taking for granted of the human rights, the economic and social um, opportunities that we have. And I think that there can be a kind of complacency that comes when we just, you know, think that our rights are just going to be kind of guaranteed forever and not realise that kind of continued participation in the political system um, and, you know, really standing up for those rights and uh, being protected in our own lives and in others is required to ensure that it remains a kind of uh, strong aspect of our society. So with your students, um, who I believe are around the age of 11, 12, 13, that sort of range, maybe a bit older, um, do you think they appreciate how important human rights are in society and for, for they themselves as individuals? Or... Do you, do you think it's really something they take just take for granted? The most common phrase related to human rights that I hear is, I know my rights. You know, there's this kind of an entitlement, um, and but they don't really know their rights. They don't really know what the, uh, you know, what exactly is protected and what isn't. So it's a bit of a vague idea for them. I bought a unit um, as part of year 11, so part of the VCE Legal Studies course, they cover rights. Um, and it was really interesting that very, you know, the students had a very, very limited understanding of what human rights were moving into the course. And hopefully by the end of the course, they had a bit of a better understanding. Um, but my sense is that, yeah, a lot of, a lot of um, 11, 12, 13 year olds don't really understand what human rights are and why they're important. And I think there was a bit of an aha moment in a lot of the classes where they kind of realized that human rights can be a tool to stand up for the disenfranchised in a society and, and around the world. And I would presume that most of those students uh, in a country such as Australia and certainly other, let's say, wealthy, privileged countries are also very unaware of what it actually took for there to be human rights in the first place and how essentially not one single human right that we now have in law and in practice in some countries uh, was given for free. Every single human right in the world, including all the rights that you see in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, all those 30 articles, um, every single one of those rights was essentially something that was fought for, um, something that was not given for free, something that the power authorities, the elite, the wealthy, the kings and queens, the royalty, um, and governments themselves had to eventually bend to the will of the people for in order for those things to become the rights that we're used to today. Um, and that's a tremendously important uh, point to make, I think, and that's something that really needs to be reiterated to anybody 
takes any of their human rights for granted, um, because that's ultimately what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a power equation, essentially, between the state or the economic elite um, and ordinary citizens, ordinary human beings, and the basic things that they want to have in their life to have a full life to have a safe life, to have a free life, you know? And so that's a staggeringly important thing and something, you know, for all of you to think about right now. Um, you know, just think for a moment, not only of how we got human rights in the first place, and remember, this is a relatively recent phenomenon in the history of humanity. Uh, it's really only in the last 70 years that we've had this whole field called human rights. Even before the Second World War, there wasn't really the type of human rights protections in place that we have now and that we've gotten used to. Um, and in the previous 200, 300, 400 generations of humans, there was nothing of the sort. It was really, you know, largely a, a question of, you know, war of all against all, essentially, and it's purely about power and, and the lack of power. And so, you know, how did we get to this place? And then for a moment, just think of the amount of people on planet Earth today who are living out their lives without their human rights being met and whose, whose rights are being trampled on actively by governments across the globe in every continent. And what a tragedy that is and how we none of us should ever feel truly free or truly happy or, or truly liberated until we know that human rights are protected everywhere all the time for every gender, for every age, for every income group, for every color, for every religion, for every race, all of these things um, that are often used as a justification for the violation of rights. Until those finally end, you know, none of us are truly free. And so human rights, you know, are not nearly as strong as we would like them to be. They're very easy to violate with impunity, meaning people get away with the crimes uh, that they commit. But at the same time, there's been massive progress since 1948. You know, literally hundreds of human rights treaties and national laws and constitutions have been adopted since then to further protect and entrench human rights protections. Um, new institutions have been created within the United Nations, within the Council of Europe, and a whole range um, of others. And even in my uh, 30 years or so working on human rights, you know, in more than 80 countries all across the world, there's been huge developments, hugely positive developments when it comes to the question of human rights. Um, when I started working in the human rights field in the 1980s, there was no hope of there ever being an office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. And then suddenly there was one. Talk about an international criminal court was something you would do as a joke. Um, and now there is one for the past 20 years. Perhaps it doesn't function as, as well as we may have hoped, um, but nonetheless, it is in place and people have been prosecuted for uh, human rights crimes. There were no laws on the book at the international level dealing with the issues that we work on until we basically ensured that they got through the system at the UN. Dealing with housing rights, dealing with forced evictions, dealing with restitution rights, dealing with women's housing rights, dealing with a whole range of issues. Uh, climate displacement. None of those things were really on the um, international human rights agenda until, you know, human rights activists like ourselves and human rights organizations uh, got the facts together, put them on the table at the United Nations Human Rights Commission, now Human Rights Council, and, and other places within the UN, and actually got those things to be taken seriously as major international human rights issues. So there have been lots of advancements, there's no question. But still, to this day, 70 years on, there is massive room for improvement and massive backsliding in a number of countries. We're living in an era where a number of governments are blaming immigrants for the domestic problems that exist uh, in those countries, the cheap scapegoat of, of all time, which is 
always ended in tragedy wherever that's been done in the past and something that's extremely dangerous. Um, still, in most countries, women are discriminated against structurally, systematically, also in terms of income, where their income levels are significantly less than men, despite the forward steps in recent years from the Me Too movement and other movements involving the rights of women. Children remain exploited and, uh, and, and subject to severe human rights violations in many respects um, all across the world. The list goes on and on. Torture remains prevalent. Um, violations of economic and social and cultural rights remain very prevalent. Indigenous peoples, despite making huge strides forward in the last 25 years in particular, are still very much at the mercy of, of dominant governments and, and multinational corporations which attempt to exploit or steal uh, the land that they've lived on for often thousands upon thousands of years. So the, the list goes on. So let's not forget that. Let's always spare a moment uh, during this podcast and always for those who are fighting every single day to have their rights respected and protected. And let none of us take our rights for granted. Because the second you start taking your rights for granted is the time that people who are not that supportive of human rights begin to plan their quest to formally do that to you. So never, ever take your rights for granted and realize that democracy is built on human rights. Freedom is built on human rights. A full, productive, prosperous life is built on the foundations of human rights. So yes, we've made advancements. Yes, we've made many positive differences collectively over the past 70 years, but we still have a real long way um, to go. So, Jordan, what do you think are some of the key human rights challenges, let's say, just facing Australia today? I mean, this is a country right now still considered to be the richest country on planet Earth when you look at it at a median income level, thanks largely to the, the value of housing. Um, so, you know, for instance, from a human rights perspective, people in your age group, the millennials, your, your generation, um, have the lowest rates of home ownership of any generation since uh, Australia became a federation, you know, just over 100 years ago. So in, in that respect, um, you know, if we see that as a dimension, as a part of human rights and a part of housing rights, you know, that's increasingly difficult for people in your age group to access the housing market because prices are so high, basically resigning a huge number of people to being tenants for the rest of their life. But there's nothing wrong at all with being a tenant. Of course, if there's adequate protections in many countries, there's there's massive numbers of tenants, particularly wealthy countries like, like Switzerland and, and Holland, which are highly wealthy. But in the cities in those countries, the vast majority of people are actually tenants. But they have huge amounts of tenure protection, so they can't be evicted arbitrarily. Their rents can't go up dramatically and stuff. So that's one way I think that you know your generation obviously is impacted by um, you know less than perfect uh, human rights conditions. Obviously, Aboriginal people in Australia who have now been here at least 60,000 60, years, some people say even longer. There's new theories running around, which I've heard recently that even say that human life itself may have originated in Australia, in fact, um, and not in Africa. I don't know if that's necessarily true or not, but I have heard that increasingly. Um, and they, of course, suffered huge, huge uh, human rights deprivations in this country in so many different ways. Deaths in custody, lower life expectancy, higher levels of poverty, lower levels of education, lower levels of income, teen suicide. The list goes you know, on and on and on. And there's a whole range of other human rights challenges, even in this, you know, the wealthiest country on planet Earth, which, by the way, listeners uh, probably do not realize this, but Australia has no Bill of Rights. 
Um, and they're still greatly reluctant to even entertain the idea that there should be uh, a Bill of Rights. The role of international human rights treaties within the domestic legal sphere of Australia and within the courtrooms of Australia is comparatively very rare. And so even here, there's a real long way to go um, to catch up with some of the more progressive countries when it comes to the daily sort of reliance on human rights as a, as a tool for organizing society. So what else do you see like amongst your age group as some of the human rights challenges that you will face now, but also, you know, into the future over the next 10, 20, 50 years as technology becomes more dominant, as artificial intelligence becomes more dominant, automation becomes more dominant, and as climate change worsens. Is it still working? Um, so, yeah, that's a big question. Um, well, I think that when I think of that question, I'm not quite so concerned about my own particular the threats to my own human rights. I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm living, you know, in the point one percent in terms of privilege. And so when I think in the next 10, 20, 50 years, although I can imagine that, yeah, there, there may be some threats in terms of privacy um, as uh, the technology develops, um, and there may be, you know, difficulties in terms of me being able to get into the housing market. I don't actually worry too much about that. My concern is more for the um, minority groups. So, you know, in Australia, I think, as you mentioned, um, there's in issues with Indigenous rights. But I, in addition to that, you know, and you also mentioned the issue of um, migration. And that's one of the kind of glaring examples of Australia really dropping the baton and um, really trying to put asylum seekers out of mind and out of sight. Um, and, you know, uh, that's... We, we talk about that a lot in um, the Year 10 Humanities course about Australia's treatment of asylum seekers. And it's really interesting, as soon as you take that out of the shadows and um, start to talk about it with young people, their reaction is is very human and very natural, and um, they're kind of exasperated and shocked by, by the denialism of the government and the way that um, really we... we uh, dehumanize these people who are seeking asylum and um, so I think I'm concerned about the minority groups and as in the next 10 20 30 40 50 years I'm very conscious of um, the impacts of climate change and how increasing food insecurity and natural disasters and things like that will probably um, really threaten even further those minority groups and their capacity to be able to thrive and um, make sense of the world around them and live meaningful um, meaningful lives. That's where my, my attention goes. What about you, Scott? What, what are you thinking about looking forwards? Where, where do you think are the kind of areas to be concerned and also the areas of opportunities? Well, in Australia, I would like Australia to become far more, uh, let's say, internationalist-minded when it comes to human rights issues than it has been for the last uh, period of time. So, you know, let's let's look towards countries that have directly incorporated human rights treaties into their own domestic legal structure. Let's let's look at ways by which individual people in Australia can try to directly you know, claim their human rights under these human rights treaties that Australia has ratified voluntarily already. Um, so they've already made that political step, but they haven't made the legal step. Um, of course, when it comes to um, immigration and asylum seekers. Uh, you know, asylum seekers, you really need to divide into two categories. Ones that come in, you know, the proverbial front door, so through the organized asylum refugee process, um, 
and those who try to come in by boats, essentially, from Indonesia and elsewhere. And that's a huge political issue in Australia. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, it really is the Achilles heel of Australia's human rights policy because they have made a decision to stop the boats. Uh, it's a political decision, essentially shared by both uh, the Liberal government now and the uh, Labour Party, to stop all boats with asylum seekers on them and turn them back. And those that are not able to be turned back, they are held on, on off-site detention centers on the island of Manus Island in uh, the Pacific and also in Nauru, the country of Nauru, in, in deplorable conditions which have been condemned roundly by a whole series of human rights organizations, etc. And those camps are still there and those people are still languishing. The vast majority of them are legitimate asylum seekers who would get asylum if they were able to have their case heard. But because they tried to come in by boat are put on these offshore detention centers to live out the past few years of their lives in extreme misery and extreme hardship. So that's really something that needs to be resolved. It was attempted to be resolved recently in Parliament, but that failed. Um, so we'll see where that goes. But I think... You know, Australia is a country of immigrants, and, and it's an increasingly multicultural society, and a very successful one for all intents and purposes, one of the most successful multicultural societies, I would say, in the world. I mean, uh, over the last few years, we've taken in anywhere between 250, well, let's say 170,000 to 250,000 immigrants per year, with almost no negative consequences or discussion about it. It's widely accepted throughout the political spectrum that this is something good for Australia, something good for the economy, something good for the culture, something good, you know, more generally. So I think immigration really needs to be praised and, you know, it needs to continue. And, and that contributes to making Australia a far better country. We need to, you know, resist voices that say that we should stop immigration or reduce it, etc. But at the same time, we need to make sure that, you know, new immigration combined with increasing wealth doesn't create uh, the, the very class structures that Australia has been so proud to have tried to reduce over the years. You know, it's really antithetical to the Australian system of, of you know, social values and mores to have a, a truly elite class and a true and a true underclass. And that's the way that things are developing as wealth concentrates into fewer and fewer hands. And it may be better here than it is in many other countries, but it's still worsening. Inequality is increasing, not decreasing. And that's something that we really need to, you know, work on quite structurally. Domestic violence is a huge human rights problem, which continues to grow and affect, you know, huge numbers of uh, women across the country. Um, and there are there are really, you know, a whole range of areas, basically in every sector where Australia could Know, improve its record. But if we jump out of Australia for a moment, just think in global terms, I mean, all you really need to do is, you know, close your eyes and put your finger on a world map and find find a country and there will be human rights violations there, even in the most advanced um, countries. So, you know, we can think of, for instance, um, let's think of the question of displacement alone as a, as a human rights issue. Um, we now have more refugees, more internally displaced people, on planet Earth than at any time since the end of the Second World War, despite all efforts to prevent displacement, despite all the efforts of organizations like the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and others to help find solutions for this, these forms of forced displacement. We have 65 million people 
on planet Earth right now who are not able to go home to where they would like to be. And, you know, that's that's an ongoing, uh, you know, horrendous tragedy. In terms of future issues that are bound to be hugely influential in human rights terms, none are larger than an issue that we work on every single day, which is uh, climate displacement. The number of people who are already being displaced by climate change is far higher than most people realize. The number of people that will be eventually displaced because of climate change is so high that it is almost impossible to imagine that that many people will be forced to leave their homes. Reports came out two days ago saying that the melting of ice in Greenland is going at a far faster rate than initially thought, and that if all of the ice in Greenland were to melt, the sea levels across planet Earth would rise by 23 feet, or 7 meters. So just imagine that wherever you're sitting, imagine your country, imagine if you're living on a coastline, uh, what if the water was 7 meters higher than it is now? You know, what would happen? Where would those people go? Who looks after them? Do they get a new piece of land? Do they get compensation for their lost properties and lost homes? Um, what is to be done? Are these people simply meant to go to the slums and start life over there in extreme poverty? Or are there methods and, and policies that can be pursued that will actually protect their rights? Now, this is probably the greatest challenge that the entire human race faces today, um, climate change. And it's not just an environmental challenge. It's also very much a human rights challenge. And human rights laws need to rise to the occasion and to be used by these communities and by governments and by NGOs and by lawyers as a tool to um, you know, protect these people. And if that's done, if these people, these hundreds of millions of people we're talking about, are treated as rights holders, then very positive, proactive, practical solutions you know, can be found. If they're treated only as migrants or as unfortunate victims of environmental consequences left to fend for themselves, we can automatically see uh, what the consequences will be, and they will not be pretty. Governments around the world are recognizing not only climate change as a huge humanitarian issue or human rights issue, but also a security issue. Many people believe that climate change is the national and international security issue affecting international peace and security over all others in, in the coming years. And there's a conference of the parties going on right now as we speak in um, Poland, discussing these matters, but it's difficult to make substantive progress, even though all of the writing is on the wall just as, as to how severe this problem is because of opposition by a number of countries, most notably the United States, which is attempting to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, the Trump administration is full of climate deniers, those linked to the fossil fuel industry, those people who one day hopefully will wake up and see that the things they're promoting today are causing immense, immense suffering for countless people and communities across the planet. The only good thing really about climate change is that it is a problem that is truly global in nature. There's not that many problems which are truly and ultimately global, affecting every country and ultimately every single person. So in that way, if we see it as a global problem requiring global solutions, hopefully it can be used as a as a force that brings people together rather than driving them apart. So, you know, that's our hope um, at Jointly Venturing in Oneness World. Let's work together to address climate change. Let's see that climate change is something that affects literally every single person. And also it's something that every single person can have a role in, in terms of reducing the effects of climate change and finding 
solutions to it. So that is really one of the big human rights challenges of you know the next century um, starting today. What are we going to do about climate change? How are we going to um, react to it? And will, will we have enough motivation to reduce the consequences of it you know, to the maximum possible degree? It makes me think, Scott, a lot of people said, oh, the only way that the human race is going to get together and, and unite as if there's like some alien threat, you know, because war and conflict is like, you know, one of the ways that has been able to bind groups of people together. Um, could something like climate change serve that kind of role? It's a, it's a global problem that the only real way we can solve it, it seems, is if we work together. So I'm curious about that and also curious um, as we talk about this issue, what, what is it that, that each of us can do? Often the global situation can seem so overwhelming that people don't even know where to start, so it's just easier to put it out of sight and out of mind. But obviously we don't want to advocate for that kind of head-in-the-sand approach. So how can we go up and really um, meet this moment and this challenge um, without, on the one hand, kind of freaking out and um, feeling overwhelmed, um, uh, you know, and, and also not biting off more than we can chew, not, not kind of trying to carry the world in our shoulders. So w- what is it that, in, that, that we can each do to... And is, is human rights one of the important tools in our toolkit? I mean, there's so much we can do. You know, I should say that, you know, in my travels around the world, which is, you know, unfortunately contributing to climate change, I fully realize and acknowledge that. Um, but nonetheless, in discussions with people all around the world, thousands upon thousands of discussions about this whole notion of world citizenship and having a oneness world in place, having a global parliament in place and global voting and a whole new system that transcends the nation state and makes all of us ultimately into world citizens and national citizens and individuals simultaneously. The most common uh, response I get from people is that will only happen, as you alluded to, that will only ever happen if aliens attack planet Earth, right? I mean, it's an amazing response. I mean, because the likelihood of that happening is not very high, (laughs) but that's what immediately pops into the minds of people, whether it's in Brazil or, you know, Albania or the United States or wherever it may be. Um, Nepal, um, very often that's what sort of comes up, you know? So that's probably not going to happen as far as we know. Um, Let's hope and pray that World War III never happens because we don't want to have the consequences of that to contemplate. But why don't we see climate change ultimately as the alien and treat it as the alien, treat it as this phenomena, which is going to truly affect all of us and ultimately, you know, reduce the quality of life for just about everybody. Um, and then use that as the motivation to band together as the human race, as one species and institute essentially a new Marshall Plan, you know, similar to what was uh, carried out following the Second World War, the reconstruction of Europe, the Marshall Plan, which was so successful in rebuilding um, the the countries that actually started that war and were responsible for it, Japan as well, of course, and using using climate change as the great motivator to do that. And I think there's every possibility that we could do that. You know, we could see look, there's going to be 200, 400, 800 million people displaced. Okay, well, how do we solve that problem? You know, temperatures are going to rise by two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, five degrees in all of these different places. How do we actually deal with that? Can we not subsidize, um, you know, renewable energy 
um, to, to a much higher degree than we have now. Can we not find ways to truly eradicate the burning of fossil fuels once and for all and just simply end that process given how harmful it has proven to be for uh, the planet as a whole and a whole range of other things. And, you know, maybe that threat when people realize the severity of it, which I think people are increasingly realizing and, it, and more and more people are being personally affected by it. You know, fires are more common, storms are more common, the temperature is rising, the sea levels are rising, and more and more people see it directly personally um, and are convinced. So maybe this is, you know, the, the, the silver lining. You know, climate change is so bad, we've clearly caused it as human beings. This is not something that has just simply occurred. Um, and human beings have to be the ones that solve it. So, you know, what do we do to try to solve it? Well, you know, I was reading through some documents the other day and it said the number one thing humans can do to reduce climate change. I mean, this will be unpopular amongst many people, but this is what, you know, the analysts say is have no children. You know, so if if one person has no children, their ultimate contribution to reducing climate change is far greater than any other act or omission or let's say non-act that you take throughout your life. So aside from that. Uh, number two is never drive slash fly. And number three, maybe even number two is don't eat meat. You know, so if you don't eat meat, if you don't drive or drive less, fly less, um, have fewer children, all of those things together, which might not seem directly related to the climate, but they all are. Um, that's how you begin to slow the process down and to start building a, a you know, a more global society that um, realizes the simple fact, and if climate change doesn't prove this to you, nothing ever will, everything is related to everything else. Nothing stands alone. It's one system, incredibly complex, incredibly intricate, but ultimately one system. It's one planet, it's one ecosystem on which all of us rely. And we always forget that. Virtually all of us never think about that on a daily basis, particularly if we live in cities, which, in, which growing, number of us, uh, of us, growing numbers of us do. Um, but it's really important to remember that all of us are totally dependent on the nat natural environment. We are dependent on planet Earth. We are dependent on the climate. And if we want to continue to live comfortable, free, prosperous lives where all of our basic needs are met, we need to really begin recalculating how we achieve those things in a way that does not damage the planet further. We've got one, one planet. That's it, as far as we know. And as we have said here at Oneness World, you know, exploring or settling Mars is no excuse for ruining planet Earth. And that may sound, you know, like an outlandish phrase or, you know, a melodramatic phrase, but ultimately it's true. We've been blessed with this extraordinary planet with so much beauty and so many resources. It's got to be within our means to manage it in such a way that it can be home for people in a comfortable, pleasant, peaceful, harmonious way, not just for a few more years. Climate scientists tell us we essentially have 12 years now to make all the, all the needed changes in order to save the planet. I don't want humans to only live for 12 more years, you know? I want humans to live for 12,000 years or 12 million years or whatever length of time um, it may be, but far, far, far longer than half of a human generation. And I think, you know, that the human race is worth it. I think the planet is worth it. I think all the species on the planet are worth it. And that's what we need to start thinking about, you know? You know, I'm an international human rights lawyer. I'm, you know, I have lots of education. I've 
you know, met people from every country in the world. I've read thousands of books. I'm not just some flaky guy who, you know, believes in peace, love and harmony and only that. And I do believe in that. But, I, you know, I also believe that, you know, all of the things I'm saying, you know, we are totally dependent on Mother Nature for our own survival. And we forget that at our peril. And no matter how wealthy you are or how poor you are, you're in the same boat when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. And together, you know, let's use climate change as a way to unify ourselves, to continue to see the similarities between us and to stand in the shoes of every single victim of climate change across the world and imagine for just a split second what it would be like to lose your home to rising sea levels, what it would be like to have to move from your home because you could no longer grow crops uh, where you're living or and the list goes on. So, you know, that's that's the plea we make, you know, like let's use climate change Let's recognize it for all of its dangers, um, but let's use those dangers as a way to bring the human race together and to fight a, essentially a common enemy. Yeah, great. Um, it also makes me think of those stories about, you know, the mother who sees the child under the car and is able to kind of lift the car off the child. And right. there's something about um, when something, you know, we really love is on the line, it can bring out potentially bring out the best in us um so how is it i'm curious how is it that that you've seen that process so you've worked as a human rights lawyer for 30 years and you've often been face to face with severe human suffering how is it that um that can be a call to action that motivates you and energizes you and how do you avoid getting overwhelmed and despairing and and how can we each step up to that opportunity and is it that actually um it might be in some way a gift to be able to live a meaningful life in service of the greater whole rather than just a sac- you know a sacrifice it's a total bummer is there a, is is there a kind of joy that we can find in uh, helping bring about this brighter future well uh, you know those of us who are lucky enough to um, have had an education um, in good schools and good universities uh, etc uh, and who also have ultimately what those in the integral community or integral philosophy would call world-centric consciousness, the ability to see not just your own person or your own family or your own community or your own state or your own country, but the world as a whole, as uh, as important as everything else. Um, when you get to the world-centric consciousness moment of understanding, um, automatically you begin caring about uh, the suffering of other human beings. Um, and you're increasingly able to stand in their shoes. And, you know, who wants to suffer, right? Nobody wants to suffer. It's the, you know, the first noble truth of Buddha was all beings suffer. And suffering is a, a constant state of existence. Um, so suffering is very, a very real thing. Nobody really wants it, obviously. And, you know, we then obviously can have a choice of what we do with our working lives and how we decide to spend our time and what we decide to focus on and do we decide to focus on uh, particularly those who have an options available i realize that many people don't have options available many people have no option um, other than to do what their parents did for a living or what's possible in their particular area but for those of us who have options um, you know ultimately one can choose to make money essentially. One can choose to be, be a businessman and, and, and create a product and sell a product and make money as if that's the path towards joy and, and, and you know, um, the peak human experience. Um, and a lot of people do choose that path, right? A lot. Probably the majority choose forms and variations of that path. Others can choose paths regarding um, 
efforts to essentially, for the lack of a better phrase, make the world a better place, you know? And that can manifest in countless ways. You know, people can become doctors, people can become uh, nurses, people can become even, you know, garbage men and women perform an incredibly useful role. I mean, imagine if there were no garbage men and women in a country that has those services on a weekly basis. How horrible that society would quickly become, you know? Societies can live very easily without bankers and, and businessmen and all sorts of, you know, professions like that if they needed to, they couldn't live very long without the people that take the rubbish away or the people that rep- repair the pipes in your house, you know, the plumbers or the people that build the houses, the builders. You know, so we need to, you know, remember those things. And, and at a different level, if one is able to make, you know, choices, the, the ability to be able to choose to work in the field of human rights is both extremely daunting and at the same time extremely rewarding because you realize in the end when you reflect back that of course you will always be guaranteed to have more failures than victories when, when you choose to work in human rights because the forces against you are so much bigger than you are you know um, the power of the state the power of large corporations the power of military dictatorships the power of armies and generals against little old human rights organizations and human rights lawyers but if you play your cards right and you're able to be creative and innovative and and really pick your battles so to speak um you can have victories um as the little guy um and you can have victories which ultimately have a have huge leverage you know much more leverage than you could have ever imagined you know in that regard it's you know extremely rewarding to have worked 30 years in human rights with, you know, a, a solid, I don't know, 20, 50 victories, you know, under our belts, you know, we would have liked to have hundreds and we tried hundreds and hundreds of times, whether to support an individual person or to support, an, you know, a community that was going to be evicted or another community that had to move because of uh, climate change or, or a group of refugees or IDPs who wanted to return back to their former homes. Uh, in some cases, they were able to because of our efforts. In other cases, the majority, they weren't able to. But at least we tried. You know, at least we made that effort. And, you know, f- for me, you know, it's it's the greatest honor to have been able to um, do that. You know, even when you know it's not likely that you're going to win. Um, trying is a lot better than simply giving up, you know. And, and working in these fields is also, a, you know, in a way, it's an antidote to frustration and anger. When you do nothing or do too little, that's when you can start getting angry. And that's not usually very constructive or you can get frustrated um, or you can get just tired, you know. And uh, being engaged in the field of human rights is a way to transcend that anger and frustration. You might still feel it and you certainly don't like it when human rights are abused, you know, when despots, you know, arrest a thousand people in a day and torture half of them to death, etc., etc. I mean, that's just the most heinous thing. You can't even imagine that that's possible, you know, um, uh, on the earth today. Um, but it happens and, and political opponents are killed and so many horrible things continue um, to happen. And, and yet, you know, human rights activists and others don't give up. They never give up. You know, let me let me speak about, you know, a really good friend of mine, for instance. Um, his name's Graham Russell. He heads an organization called Rights Action. He set it up 20, 30 years ago. Focuses on human rights violations in Central America. I mean, he is truly an extraordinary human being. You know, he never gives up. Despite the so many people that he's worked with have been murdered by death squads, by despotic governments, by rogue military units and others and yet he continues on and on to work with people and communities across 
um, Central America to protect their rights and to draw attention to these types of abuses. And there are, and you know, he does great work. Rightsaction.org is the is the NGO, and so many other people also, you know, across the world. And that's really one of the the hidden benefits, in a way, of working on human rights is that you get to work with extraordinary people, you know, in in all countries, um, people who, you know, really very often put others before themselves. And working with that level of compassion and empathy um, really shows you again that it's very possible one day to imagine the world as a unified species, because ultimately it comes down to that. More and more people feeling empathy and compassion, not just for their own family, not just for their own community or their own political party or their own religion or their own racial group or whatever it may be but feeling empathy for everyone everywhere all the time and and building on that empathy and that compassion to then build the societies and ultimately the world that really all of us deserve you know we don't deserve dictatorships we don't deserve despots we don't deserve torture we don't deserve cruelty um we deserve a lot more than that you know and um we have the ability to build the world that all of us know is possible, you know, to paraphrase the inimitable Charles Eisenstein. Um, and that's something that, you know, we, we all need to do in our own ways. And, you know, one of those ways is you know, living the human rights life, ultimately trying to push the boundaries of human rights laws and human rights institutions and human rights um, uh, programs in a increasingly protective direction so that you know the blanket of protection of human rights can literally cover you know everyone across the world so is there are there maybe three messages that you would want every person on planet earth to know about human rights and perhaps how they can use them to forge a brighter future for everyone well yeah at least three probably hundreds but i guess three of the most important would simply be that you know you have human rights whoever you are wherever you are rich poor north south east west you are a rights holder under international law and there's nothing anybody can ever say to you to take that away um secondly your rights will probably not be respected and protected unless you and your colleagues and your friends and particularly your lawyers and your ngos and others stand up for them you know rights have to be defended they have to be claimed they have to be asserted do not wait for governments to become nice and friendly, because very often they aren't. Governments are very often just afraid. You know, they are afraid of losing power. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them, uh, you know, if they were to lose power. And that's why they behave um, so badly, you know. So you need to claim your rights. So you're a rights holder, and you need to claim them. And thirdly, I guess, remember that human rights struggles often do win, even when it seems like they never will. And this is, and it's not guaranteed that they will win, but I can say from personal experience over the many years, there were times when you thought that the apartheid regime in South Africa would never, ever yield power and that the black and so-called colored majority were going to be oppressed for centuries to go. And then suddenly it was gone. In a few short years, apartheid was over and the majority was able to take control in a, in a relatively peaceful way. It was an extraordinary change which really could not have been predicted that east timor went from being an occupied country to independence in a few short months out of the blue almost when it seemed highly unlikely and yet they got it and i could give you know countless other examples of places that looked hopeless in human rights terms that really turned around so there are some instances around the world that look increasingly difficult 
uh, to imagine brighter futures for, of course, to this day. I mean, think of Syria, think of Yemen, think of Palestine, think of Tibet, think of so many others where it looks like the possibility of, uh, you know, fully protected human rights are, are, is lower than ever. Nonetheless, there are those victories um, that have occurred in the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 70 years, um, many of which were actually built on the foundations of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we're celebrating today, you know, 70 years of it. A lot of the movements that formed and eventually were successful in overturning human rights violations and dictatorships were built upon those very norms. They used those norms to convince the people that things that were being done were wrong and that a new beginning was needed. So, you know, human rights are very much alive. They're very much evolving. Um, many developments have occurred in the last 70 years that we could have never imagined, and good ones, um, but we still have a long way to go. So spare a thought for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights today. You know, let's hope in 10 years when it's the 80th anniversary in, in 2028 and in 2048 when it's the, cent the century mark, the 100-year anniversary of the Universal Declaration, that we're able to look back on the history and say that all of the rights contained in that incredible document, which again, encourage all of you to read and to really take to heart, um, are met. And um, they're increasingly easy to enforce in domestic courts around the world and in international courts. And where human rights compliance becomes the norm instead of human rights you know, violations. So Jordan, thank you very much for today's um, conversation about um, human rights and the honoring the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration. And also I'd like to do a shout out too today to Peter Martin, who is the fine guitar player who wrote the theme song for Jointly Venturing. So with that, I'll leave you to the music and we'll see you next time for episode five. Thanks again, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye now. Mm-hmm.